The Guardian. The Guardian is delighted to announce the launch of our new Global Development Professionals Network. It's completely free, and it's the place for global development professionals to share, discuss, and promote new ideas about the sector. With weekly newsletters, a first look at jobs, and live Q&As with global development experts. As a listener to this podcast, we're offering you the chance to win an iPad just for signing up to the network today. To find out more, head to guardian.co.uk slash win the iPad. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we look ahead to next week's Leveson Report, when we finally hear... John! Yes, producer Matt? The news has changed. Tell me more. There's a new DG. A new DG? Who is it? Tony Hall. Tony Hall? What, and he's speaking now? Yes. At Broadcasting House? Yes. Well, let's go there live. It's been a really tough uh, few weeks for this organisation. I know we can get through it by listening patiently, by thinking carefully about what to do next. I am absolutely committed to our news operation as an absolute world beater. Likewise, I'm committed to ensuring in every way that I can that the best and the brightest, the most creative people in the country or indeed around the world come and want to work in this place and this is their home and this is where they want to work uh, first. No one can do this uh, on their own. If you're going to run a creative organisation, you need a team. I know that from my earliest days as a news trainee in this organisation, through to my uh, uh, latter days running the BBC News, through to now at the Royal Opera House. I know that with the right creative team in place, working off each other, sparking off each other, giving each other ideas, you can do extraordinary creative things. And I want to build a world-class team for this world-class organisation. That was Tony Hall there speaking, well, almost live at the BBC's Broadcasting House where he was unveiled as the BBC's new DG by BBC Trust Chairman Lord Patton. I'm joined by Dan Sabber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Tech. Dan, it just seems like, a, well, a couple of months ago we were talking about the new DG. Yes, deja vu all over again. But but um, this is not this is not Chelsea, as Chris Patton rather angrily said. Uh, they've only had two Directors General in nine years, if you count eight and three quarters of Mark Thompson or whatever it is and 54 days of George Entwistle but but what a surprise look what a surprise no process uh, really Lord Patton rings up Lord Hall uh, as he is Lord Hall of Birkenhead uh, rings you up and says please do it and this time Lord Hall says well maybe and then before you know it uh, you know there's a whirlwind romance and there's a trust meeting on Tuesday in which they interview each other eight trustees being interviewed by Lord Hall or is it the other way around and the trust one of offering the job and Lord Hall says yes and here we are uh, a day after, uh, you know, one day in, and we have a new director general. A remarkable sort of unanimity in the in the media, uh, sort of everyone saying, "Well, yes, he is the right man for the job," uh, and certainly he he does feel like the right man in the wake of uh, Entwistle's fifty four days in charge. But I wonder, Dan, if I can throw this to you, uh, if he'd been chosen first time round and in, ahead of Entwistle, would we have been saying the same things about him then, or would we have said, "Well, a bit of a throwback to BBC past"? Is he the man for you know a, a, the very digital future? 
Oh, I think a really, a really good question, actually, because I think you're quite right. I mean, you know, had he been chosen that time, everyone would have sort of started thinking, well, you know, 61. I mean, you know, Tony Hall himself thought he was too old at 61 to go for the job. You know, he's 61 and all right, he's very experienced and very capable. But, yeah, you know, is he, is he the guy that we need? Uh, but it just goes to show that there's always these appointments are made in a particular set of circumstances. And I think, you know, certainly the, the BBC desperately wants to be led. And I think there are a lot of people out there who want the BBC to be sort of yeah, out of the news or only in the news for making good programs uh, supporters of the BBC that is and just um, you know just 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 properly organised just able to sort of argue its case in public just able to defend and, and speak up against the endless attacks and just able to look sort of competent and reassuring and Tony Hall certainly got that kind of bank manager sort of look about him We'll get on to well, that's good. The bank manager. This is what the BBC needs right now, as opposed to Entwistle, who was um, well, he was more like a, a, a England football coach. Well, yes, actually, I mean, he just was. Um, look, he looked like a good candidate on paper, George Entwistle. I think he produced a lot of sort of you know, good, good sounding strategies, but he just wasn't resilient and robust enough in the sort of face of the sort of the daily combat that is you know, is running the BBC and and the trust just hopelessly underestimated that in their original appointment process. And this time round, you know, Tony Hall's runs. Something you know, he's been boss of the Royal Up House for eleven years. Uh, okay, it's not as high profile as the BBC, but it's pretty significant cultural institution. So uh, he knows about running organisations. He also ran the Cultural Olympiad, which I think was in danger of seriously overspending, and he helped get that back under control. So yeah, he knows the pressures. He knows the territory, and having spent a similar amount of time, I think uh, again, I think it was eleven years actually running BBC News as well. You know, he knows about the top of that organisation. Uh, you know, and the pressures involved. You know, shepherding through I don't know the Diana the, the famous Panorama Diana interview for example he was a uh, I think intimately involved with the editing process there you know a process where they had to sort of cut the chairman out of the loop because it was sort of too too dangerous because the chairman might have run off and indirectly told the queen because Duke Halsey had contacts in the palace and so yeah if they got that Diana film wrong for example then there would have been resignations and more uh, uh, and I think that's a sort of measure of the man. So what happens right now at the BBC? Because there's, there's an acting director of vision in Roger Mosey. There's an acting director of uh, audio and music there. There's also um, effectively acting heads of BBC News and, and deputy head as well. I mean, and he's not due to take up the job until March, I think. So presumably he's going to have a big say in, in who fills these posts. So will they, in fact, not be filled full time until uh, he arrives? Well, one of the few things he said, I mean, uh, um, was that he wanted to appoint a sort of strong creative team around him. That's how a good creative organisation works. And I think... Uh, you know, the, the great curiosity is the BBC, which everyone says has got way too much management, way too much bureaucracy, seems to be pr- terribly light on senior managers. And there's only, uh, you know, an entire sort of top tier management has been eliminated with the uh, honourable exception of Tim Davey, who sort of remains sort of last man, last man standing, you know, in, 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 and he's on a journey from being controller of radio to running BBC worldwide via, curiously, being acting director general. So he knows that. So I, look, I think all the power is going to flow to Tony Hall really fast. And it doesn't matter whether he's sitting in Covent Garden or in Broadcasting House in any way. They're hardly very far apart and they've got telephones and all that sort of thing. So I just think that if they feel the need to make the appointments quickly, I think they ought to, then I think Tony Hall's going to be intimately involved in them. And it feels like those appointments, they really do have to get some some fresh blood in there. And uh, they need, uh, well, it's not, not entirely about age, of course. It doesn't affect your ability. But they need to get some, some, some fresh blood, some, some, some young blood in there and, and women as well. Well, well, I think above all, look, I think they need a, they need they need a mixture of experience and they need experience, and they need to think about the next generation. And I think uh, obviously Tony Hall's going to go on forever, and he's sixty-one, and we're not ages around here. But yeah, at some point, you know, there's got to be a succession plan. And I think if 
if there was something that Mark Thompson perhaps got wrong was that you know he he made it look a bit just a little bit too easy actually Mark Thompson did and they didn't really and they clearly didn't get succession planning right I mean there might have been some capable directors and sort of deputy heads if you will but what there weren't was a sort of another there wasn't the next leader wasn't within the organization and that's sort of very often that's very often the case uh, in organizations but but I think in Tony Hall's case they really need to try they need to have a go at trying to get that right because you know when we were thinking about the DG ship you know, in the time before Tony Hall was a candidate uh, last summer, you know, nobody was sort of overwhelmed with the quality of the candidates, and a lot of people did talk about Lord Hall, but it was too old, maybe chairman, but not 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 director general, and of course, well, you know, things have changed, thankfully. Well, let's uh, talk about Lord Patton for a moment. As you touched on there in your first answer, it was an extraordinary way to appoint a DG, but. Um circumstances forced this upon him. Where, where, where does this leave him? He, he said yesterday when you asked him, he denied there was any pressure from num- number 10 to make a swift appointment and said uh, said that he intended to carry out his, his full term. So he says he's not going anywhere. Well, uh, I think Lord Patton's struggling a bit. I mean, he's a, he's a huge political figure. He's a charismatic figure. Uh, sometimes I think likes a joke a little bit too much. And I think recent times have been slightly more sombre. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the Savile scandal, of course, you know, recent times have been a lot more sombre than that anyone could possibly have anticipated and required a sort of, I think, a slightly different kind of leadership, perhaps not Lord Patton's natural style. The process is clearly very odd, but he'll get away with that if Lord Hall turns out to be a success, and everyone's very hopeful of that. I have to say, though, I think Patton and the Trust, they're struggling, I think, for credibility, and one of the few things that were sort of being briefed out or being suggested about Tony Hall's thinking or Lord Hall's thinking uh, was that he's not a great fan of the sort of the trust model and it's sort of great structural separation of powers and I think the problem that the trust have found is it's sort of a little bit too remote it's supposed not to be a cheerleader so Patton is too remote to be a cheerleader and provide support to a beleaguered director general which George Edmonds all very badly needed and yet sort of too far away to kind of immediately regulate or govern. You know, I'm not sure I had a strong opinion about this before the Savile crisis, but but I think I do now, which is, I think maybe the BBC is best off being run by a unitary board and Ofcom regulating it, and just like Channel 4 is, and I don't see why that won't work. And it's just simpler and more effective, and it gives the chairman a bit more lockers to get, get their hands dirty. And the Conservatives talked about sort of ripping up the uh, the BBC's charter before they uh, before they got into power uh, with the coalition, uh, but that seems to, they seem to have sort of... Um drifted away from that idea but maybe what, what how do you do you see that coming back on the agenda uh, well i do it look well the moment it, you know it's coming on the agenda by sort of by virtue of the fact that the charter negotiations has got to really happen i don't know 2015 2016 you know there's got to be a new license fee deal so these are the big you know corporate you know bits of heavy lifting that that, that lord hall's got to do and come out the other side in 2017 so i think you know, again there's every opportunity to try and create a sort of you know a simpler structure um, a less bureaucratic structure, uh, you know, regulation of both internally as well. Well, hours before they announced uh, Tony Hall's appointment on uh, on Thursday, um, one of the BBC trustees, Anthony Fryer, was giving evidence before the uh, the public Ap- public accounts committee uh, at the House of Commons, um, and he revealed more details, or a fascinating insight, really, into the uh, the circumstances uh, of, of Entwistle's departure and the sort of sequence of events that happened on that that fateful Saturday, which began with his interview on the Today programme and uh, ended with his resignation 13 hours later. Uh, uh, that's right. And I think um, I think what we'd originally thought is almost George Edwards had a kind of mini breakdown, a sort of failure of, ner- a sort of comprehensive failure of nerve that sort of, you know, in that on that Saturday, he started badly on the uh, on the airwaves. And, and, you know, it was also, I think, on BBC Breakfast. And then, you know, at some point reflected on what he had done and by the end of the day chose to resign. And I think what... Um, 
uh, you know what the trust I think is eager to put about and again show it's got a bit of muscle not a sleepy organization at all you know what's to say as Anthony Fry did that the, the, the select committee was to sort of say well they had this meeting Saturday afternoon in which I think George Entwistle, or George Entwistle goes into the room and sort of says let's not you know gentlemen and women let's not overreact and I think you know it's not you know you know let's not play this up too much and I think the trusts were sort of reacted with horror as if to say do you not realize how poorly you're performing and I think there was a lot of pushback from that meeting at that meeting it clearly was <laughs> and the end result was I think George Edwards all reflected on whenever that meeting broke up you know George Edwards reflected on that and that's when he decided to resign. Well, that's enough BBC for now. I mentioned at the uh, the top of the programme about the uh, Leveson Inquiry, of course, with a report due to be published uh, next Thursday. That's the 29th. It feels like, Dan, looking through uh, some of the newspapers today and, uh, well, ever since the Daily Mail last Friday, in fact, that the the phony war, well, it's, it's probably not really a phony war anymore. It's uh, sort of hostilities have broken out in advance of um, Lord Justice Leveson's report. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, look, you mentioned the Daily Mail there, I think, sort of incandescent is the sort of most charitable way one could describe it. And there's sort of, I think it was 12 page anyway, there's enormous extravaganzas, extraordinary assault on, on, on Sir David Bell is a mild-mannered do-gooder used to be like chairman of the Financial Times and director of people at Pearson, which is the company that owns it. And uh, he's nobody's idea of an eminence grease, really. And I mean, the idea that he's a sort of centre of some liberal conspiracy that really runs Britain is just, I mean, it's astonishing, really. I mean, he's one of the people advising um, Lord Leveson. And I think Paul Dacre, who really is one of the people who runs Britain, by the way. I mean, you know, just can't seem to get over the fact that there wasn't a tabloid a person with tabloid background as one of Leveson's advisors. And to be fair, I think Leveson made a mistake in that regard. But, you know, nevertheless, you've got to move on. But, yeah, I mean, we, we're seeing pieces everywhere. The, you know, the Telegraph, which follows the mail line on these matters, has been sort of similarly hostile and this sort of very simplistic kind of sort of championing of, of, sort of, you know, free speech. And, you know, we've got to be just sort of ratchet up a kind of sense of panic about about what the outcome might be. Um, I mean, interesting piece by Fraser Nelson in the... Uh, you know, in today's Telegraph, you know, on this theme, and I mean, at one point he quotes the sort of indifferent, this rather indifference at number ten, as if sort of you know the politicians are slightly baffled by the intensity which we and the we and the press seem to sort of have for this issue. So you know, the stage is set for an interesting Thursday next week. You know, we'll see how declarative Cameron wants to be, whether they want to say, you know, I accept, I, I don't accept, or or. Or play for time. There's some sort of interesting thoughts around that. I think. It'll frankly, be a hostage to fortune, Dan, to ask you what you're expecting in the report. But what are you expecting in the report? Thanks, John. That's really kind of you to ask me that question. I, I, my, my instinct is, like with all these things, you're actually, you, you, in broad terms, you're surprised less, uh, you know, less than you think you are. I think we'll see, you know, Leveson sort of say, uh, uh, you know, what's gone on thus far isn't, you know, isn't quite good enough, despite the fact there's lots of great journalism out there there's not enough sort of cheap and affordable you know redress for the powerless for the uh, those the subjects of uh, newspaper intrusion inaccuracy uh, you know so on and so forth and i think yeah, he, he he will also i think clearly say that the sort of industry's regulatory structure or self-regulatory structures as you know as evidenced by the pcc hasn't worked so there'll be some sort of push for a sort of stronger more independent regulator i think no one's any doubt about that Probably he'll propose recognise it in statute in some way, which may or may will give some people the vapours. But I don't think he's going to go much further than that. I'd be amazed if he did, frankly. And you know, and hopefully introducing some kind of sort of low cost court system, uh, you know, some sort of tribunal system for for, for libel, you know, libel and privacy. So for me, that feels like the core of the report's got to be around that. 
I think the thing that will surprise, though, and always surprise, is the language. And, I mean, I know you go back to another McPherson report uh, in the wake of the, the, the Lawrence murder. And, um, you know, that talked about the Met Police being institutionally racist. And you, there is something in the language which you cannot predict which will, which will stick. And that can have a really interesting resonance, I think. And Leveson spoke about uh, his fear that the uh, his report will end up, uh, I forget which shelf it was, top, was it the middle shelf, bottom shelf, of uh, covered in dust in his study and uh, will never get sort of progressed further. Uh, yes, he had to debate with Jeremy Paxman, oh, yeah, bottom or, se- or, or, or second from bottom. Look, he, he says he's alive to the political niceties and he can't sort of, you know, he's got to propose something within a range that's going to be acceptable to... To Cameron and, and both sort of wings of the Tory party. Tory party seems to be sort of interestingly split on this. Or, I mean, I think it's two thirds, you know, pro and sort of not much pro, not much change in a third the other way. Uh, so he's got to get that that right. But on the other hand, I don't know how he's a judge. He's not always a very political animal in the way he just sort of is, you know, in the utterances, the way he's handled the inquiries, not always handled things deftly. So it'll be a very interesting moment. And I think what you're going to do is you're going to get a report, which is going to instantly become an incredibly, a highly contested document. And there's going to be, the reaction on Thursday will be intense and acute. And it'll be sort of a, you know, it'll be sort of this sonic, sonic, sonic fury, quite unlike... You know Tony Tony Hall's appointment, where you know uh, uh, you know everyone's rushing to say it's a great thing, and David Dim will be saying it's brilliant. It's like when Winston Churchill's back, you know. And I think here is going to be incredibly noisy, contested terrain. All and that's so, going on, and he's going to be on a on a plane to Australia. Well, he's on. Yeah, thank, well, soon enough. A nice conference in Sydney. Nice work if you can get it. Uh, uh, but I think one of the things that's being talked about in the Guardian today, from uh, political editor Patrick Winter, one of the things that's being talked about is this idea that Cameron might. Rather than sort of say yes, I agree or no, I don't, he might say this is very interesting. I'm going to give the, going to give you the press a short amount of time. You know, I don't know, three months, six months. Come up with a good solution, or I'll legislate. Uh, and that might be an interesting bit of sort of shotgun diplomacy. And that sort of I guess gives Cameron one last you know says to the industry, okay, well you've read the report. I think it's a good document. Go away and do something about it. And if you don't by this date, then you know I'm going to come back for some more. And and that. It might that would be very it'd be, that would be an incredibly interesting sort of way of sort of dealing with some of these issues. Okay, well, all things Leveson will be covered, of course, next week with a uh, I think special edition of the podcast in conjunction with our friends on the, uh, the from Politics Weekly. Uh, another, I, th- I think listeners will also be I'm sure be delighted when this Leveson thing is over. <laughs> in a way, as well, we I think we just need to. I think we've inquired into our, ourselves enough, and now we need to move on. There's an awful lot of other challenges facing. Uh, facing newspapers, you know, digitalization, you know, losses and all the rest of it. And we need to get on and start having a conversation about those, really, instead, instead of just sort of squabbling about, actually, I mean, it feels like these terribly fundamental points, but I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not, if we had a revised regulatory structure, I don't know if we'll sort of notice a difference of degree between statutory underpin or whatever that may be or, or otherwise. Dan Sabat, thanks very much. Now, because I was rather involved uh, elsewhere yesterday, writing about Tony Hall and a little bit of George Entwistle, the second part of the show will be hosted by Helen Zaltzman, who is one half of the Answer Me This podcast, and you will also know her, of course, as a regular guest on Media Talk. Helen, over to you. Thanks, John, for your audio button. Consider it passed. Now let's move away from the traditional media for a moment and talk about the cutting edge. Over the past couple of years, we've seen the emergence of a new form of online documentary uh, interactive projects where first-person interviews and photojournalism and short-form video are explored through your iPad or alternative tablets. Many brands are available. This week saw the showcase of several new projects at one of the premier documentary festivals, IDFA, in Amsterdam. 
Media Talk decided to find out what makes these young upstarts tick. So we sent The Guardian's Francesca Panetta over to speak to Ingrid Kopp, the Director of Digital Initiatives at the Tribeca Film Institute, and also Kasper Sonnen, the founder and curator of IDFA DocLab. Roll VT. When you make a film, you make a film and you don't really have a lot of control of how it's going to be shown. Actually, that's what the TV channel or the cinema programmer, they are sort of uh, gatekeepers of the context. And the great thing of doing a web documentary is that you're actually building uh, a cinema or an exhibition space right in your browser. Mouse click. Tab. Five, seven, nine. Click. Mouse click. Ingrid, you, um, you are involved in commissioning some, uh, some of these kind of works. But tell me, give me some examples of some things that you're really inspired by. Sure. Well, Alma is a project that's here at um, Edfa Doc Lab, and it's also a project that we funded through the TFI New Media Fund. And what it does is it, it's a very personal, intense, close-up interview with a former Guatemalan gang member who basically tells her story. But while you're watching it, you can choose between watching her in close-up or scrolling down on a computer or pulling down on your iPad to see photographs that a, a photojournalist has taken. And when you do that, you then get a sort of a, a different kind of audio sound, soundtrack. So this is, this is the slow internet. It's a very, very gentle, laid-back interactivity. And it's an incredibly powerful experience, especially on an iPad. And uh, the work of the NFB, I think, has also been incredibly um, influential. The NFB is the National Film Board of Canada, and they've done, I mean, they, they, they haven't even been doing interactive work for that long, and their track record is truly incredible. Bear 71, High Rise, the High Rise series, which uh, Kat Zizek has been doing, which is just really wonderful. Banff National Park in the heart of the Canadian Rockies. Bears and humans here live closer together than any other place on Earth. That explains the radio caller constantly beeping my location to some ranger playing God. There are 15 remote sensing cameras in my home range, plus infrared counters and barbed wire snags to collect my hair. I call it the grid. High Rise is incredible because Kat works in a really extraordinary way. She, in fact, when we're, you know, when we're thinking about the panics around participatory storytelling, the way that she works with people in the areas where she's um, making these projects is, is truly participatory, and, but it's also highly authored. She has a sort of anthropological approach where she works with people who live in these high-rises around the world so that they basically get to tell the stories as participants and not as subjects. And, the, and then she also brings really cutting-edge uh, technology into that. And the combination between the sort of like listening to local voice and giving people that power and then bringing cutting-edge technologies like, you know, WebGL, I mean, really, like, out-there technologies together, I think is just, you know, it's mind-blowing, and she, she's a huge inspiration for me. My name is Kimberly Federoff. I lived in Pine Point from 75 to 84. Naming a band's a tough thing to do. Federoff just doesn't flow, and I wanted a name that would be kind of big. <laughs> Kim Castle was a big-haired, blonde singer. In a night, I usually change 10 to 12 times. I would do a Madonna tribute, Cindy Lauper tribute, share um, Egyptian costume for Walk Like an Egyptian. Some of the guys would do like a Kim Mitchell, Phil Collins. We did a lot of towns, Edmonton. Where is this all going? I mean, you've been running the Doc Lab for five years. It's still quite niche. It's still being funded essentially by uh, national broadcasters. Where do you see this going? 
Well, I think, first of all, documentary is niche, just like slow food is niche and fast food is not. But that's, that's, that's the easy answer. I was thinking when we had the discussion at the end of the conference today about business models for interactive documentary, uh, uh, nobody has money for this, how are we actually paying for this, we're having a hard time paying for traditional films or traditional journalism, how are we actually going to pay for all these new forms? And we see right now, especially with the crisis, that actually a lot of the, the mood or, or willingness for experimentation that we had five years ago is actually gone away a little bit. I mean, apart from like really hopeful things like Ingrid's Tribeca New Media Fund, I think it's going a little bit downhill. Actually, everything that's being said right now, you could actually say that for television in five years from now, right, from now on. You can say exactly the same things for radio five years from now, newspapers five years from now. They all got to be working together with brands even though we don't want to, even though we're scared of their influence, well, we probably have to. Like, Caravaggio was funded by the church, for God's sakes. Art needs to sell itself in some way to be produced, and I think the only way forward is being artistic. I'm joined now by Vicky Frost to talk through this week's television. Hello, Vicky. Hello. And you have a bit of a cold today, I understand. I do. I'm I terribly f- sorry to hear that. I feel quite sorry for myself, if, it's, uh, if I'm honest. <laughs> I hope it's non-fatal. Unlike, of course, The Killing, which we're about to talk about. That's back. Yes, it is. It's back on Saturday nights on BBC4. And um, with quite a lot of echoes of the first series, which I think for people who sort of maybe lost the faith a little bit mm. with the killing second series, where she went off to Afghanistan in the jumper and it was all a bit weird. And that is a very thick jumper to wear in a warm country. Although I think Afghanistan gets quite cold as well. It depends on which altitude she's <laughs> yeah, gone to investigate things in. Yeah, so we're back and we're back in sort of more sensible ground, sort of going back over kind of themes that we've looked at before, you know, so this idea of family in the, in the crime... And of course, there's still the political element and uh, Saranand once more being dragged into an investigation she doesn't want to get involved in um, and and then finds herself completely drawn in. Um, I'm quite liking it so far. So I've seen the first four episodes Mm -hmm. and I'm just trying desperately to remember which bits are in which episodes so I don't (laughs) inadvertently spoil anyone. I've seen the first four eps now and I'm really quite caught up in it. Um, It feels like it's quite a different pace actually from the previous uh, killings. It's kind of everything's going a lot faster uh, in terms of sort of hitting plot points as we go along. It's sort of, it's quite interesting I think that difference. So a return to form you would say? Yes, I didn't hate the second series. I just thought it went a bit weird. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of, and I mean, it still it still had sort of interesting things that, uh, about it, but uh, maybe that's me being less critical than other people. I suppose uh, once you've seen the first series, the second series has perhaps to raise the bar even more because everyone went so crazy for the first one. Yeah, and actually, I think things like the Bridge and Borgen, which you know have been massively popular and also really good quality, also put pressure on the killing to make you know to. We know this is the final outing for Sora, and it, you know it puts real real uh, pressure for, for them to really produce with this. I don't know what the... I, I haven't seen as far as the ending. I'm, I'm Yeah, I am, totally. Yeah, very hooked. I think the knitwear industry is going to be crossed when the killing finishes because although there are lots of competitors now in the Scandinavian crime dramas, none of them have really uh, cracked the jumper market. To the no, Southern Laurent has a nice line in leather trousers, if that's your thing, but I think it's a bit... It's a harder look to pull off, Certainly. I'd say. 
<laughs> Although very warm for winter as well. And also back uh, is the hour. How's yeah. that? Uh, well, stylish in a different way, I suppose. Is how not that so is leathery. Really. Not so leathery. Tends not. Tends to stay away from that end of things. Uh, yeah. So the hours back, which is BBC Two drama, I found problematic first time around. Actually, mm. it's a newsroom drama with a thriller element as well, and the meshing of those two things never quite came together for me in the first series and I think things are improving with this one um we have also we've had the introduction of Peter Capaldi into the newsroom as the new head of news Randall Brown is he uh, keeping the swears down to a minimum well it's fascinating actually because it feels like he's in the same in not that dissimilar role to Malcolm in some ways in that he is kind of the enforcer but he is uh, he's very quiet very reserved does that sort of menacing thing quite nicely so it's kind of nice to see that like from one end to the other really I guess Romola Gara I actually like a lot more this time I think um, particularly sort of the second episode she started I know lots of people think she's terribly miscast in the hour and I, I, I do understand slightly sometimes she just looks too modern I think there's something about her face that looks quite modern and sometimes she just acts too modern but I think it started to feel like she fits she's fitting into that character very well now Abby Morgan, who who writes it, I think has, is managing to sort of pull together the newsroom and the thriller elements a bit better. It's all meshing better. The dialogue uh, on uh, this week's episode was great. Uh, and there's more licks. Alec, who is played by Alex Chancellor, um, Anna- who is played by Anna Chancellor, sorry, on screen, which is a good thing as well, of course. And of course, lovely costumes. I mean, it's by no means perfect. I still find it frustrating that this is a drama that is trying to cover newsroom politics, society, personal relationships. Oh, and Mad a, Men managed it. And a massive thriller. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of feels like you could do some of those really well, but doing them all means uh, everything kind of gets a bit shortened. And, and that's I still feel that. But presumably, having one series under their belts, they know the characters a bit better and uh, they're bedded in a bit more and they don't have to explain as much, so maybe they can do the plotting rather better than before. Yeah, I think so. And also, I quite like that, you know, we really just came back and leapt straight into it. There was no there was no pussyfooting around. If you didn't see the first series, you would have really been struggling to keep up. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think you should demand of your audience and kind of make sure that you're, you're satisfying people sort of at that highest level rather than recapping all the time. So do you think it's worth uh, diving into the second series and just uh, reading the recap on Wikipedia of the first series rather than going through the first series? I think just get on with it. Yeah, just start watching it. Okay. See what see what happens, see what you think. Um, Orders from Vicky Frost, people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, her. She's got a cold. <laughs> She'll sneeze on you. And uh, something a bit different. Uh, Last Tango in Halifax, uh, a romantic comedy featuring uh, septuagenarians. Yes, it's quite a nice thing, this, I think. Yeah. So um, it stars Anne Reid and Derek Jacobi. I mean, I mean, and that in itself is why this is a good thing, really, because we see we see them fall in love on screen and they are both radiant. They're just gorgeous to watch. They totally set the television alight. They are not in a fiery way. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded really... <laughs> they were arsonists. No, they're not arsonists. <laughs> they don't come to your house and do that. But they are absolutely gorgeous to watch. And they're in a Sally Wainwright drama that I think is quite cheesy. And, you know, they you know they fall in love on Facebook. And, you know, I think the setup hasn't has been has been a bit cheesy. But based I think... Based on a true story, though. Based on a true story. Yeah, exactly. But the dialogue's beautiful. Sally Wainwright has such a lovely ear for dialogue and I think it's sort of going to progress in an interesting way and it did really good figures for BBC One and really people really loved it so 
uh, interesting thing, I think. It's sort of, um, it's not the new, new tricks, but I feel like it is kind of, it's kind of tapping into that market. Maybe the same sort of thing as Call the Midwife, you know, a classy, well-made thing. It's a bit syrupy, but actually it's quite nice to watch. And also Anne Reed is uh, generally, and also Anne Reed is actually an elderly woman. It's not like they're saying, oh, people falling in love in their twilight years, but she's played by a 40-year-old actress. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, there's something quite life-affirming about watching two older actors really acting their socks off and it being beautiful and they are really good together I mean Derek Jacoby is a great actor and Anne Reed is lovely and together they're just gorgeous to watch but there's also I think something quite life-affirming about watching a story about love at 70 actually that's quite a nice thing in itself well I understand Vicky that uh, one of the shows that you reviewed last week you would like to issue an apology to I think that's a bit strong. I think less of an apology. Make amends. More, well, just more of a sort of slight... um, Remark your score, like they sometimes do on Come Dine With Me when they've been vomiting all night and they say, I want to knock two points off the next day. That's exactly what I want to do, but I'm the drunk person in Come Dine With Me who realises I was very rude and I should (laughs) give them an extra point. I think we were talking about Secret State last week, which was Channel 4 drama, and I was finding it a bit hard going, actually. I thought there was an awful lot of exposition and... Some of the writing wasn't great. And so this is Gabriel Byrne drama, in which Gabriel Byrne is the uh, Deputy Prime Minister. And having watched the last episode, the second episode, I sort of, I actually think it's improving markedly. And I'm They'll quite... be relieved to hear it. Well, I know, I know. Yeah, I'm sure they've been waiting for this. Just hanging on. Uh, We've lost Frost, do something. (laughs) Or what Frost thinks. I do think it is really improving. So if you thought that first step wasn't really that great, go to 4OD and catch up because I think it does get better. Could you just start with the second episode? No, is the answer to that because you really would have missed... It's only a four-parter. Okay, so you can stand (laughs) the pain to get onto the good stuff. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Vicky, and I hope your cold has left you by next week. So do I. That is it for Media Talk for this week. On behalf of John and me, thank you very much to all our guests. Media Talk was produced by Matt Hill. Thank you for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Don't forget to sign up for free to the Guardian's Global Development Professionals Network and you could be in with the chance of winning an iPad. Find out more now at guardian.co.uk slash win the iPad.